0: I've been reading a a book recently um, about affirmation and why and how we should affirm other people. And the author's making the argument that we should affirm God's work in other people. We should affirm characteristics that represent God in other people. That brings the most glory to God when we do that. And so we should affirm liberally and we should affirm people in the ways that they're reflecting the character of God. And so when you think about Mother's Day today, um, I think one of the things, as I just think about Bethany and our kids and my mom and, and my brother and I and all of you moms that, um, that have children and that work with those children from the time they're younger, uh, one of the things that I think we can most clearly affirm about mothers is they give of themselves in sacrificial ways that reflect even some of the things we're going to talk about today today. Um, that is probably one of the main characteristics that when I think of the gift of a mother and of a wife who's a good mother to to my children, um, that's what moms do. They do it in a way that honors the Lord, uh, that doesn't call for um, attention and just faithfully, slowly, sacrificially does the work um, that is good work with kids. And uh, a lot of times we tend to honor people who are upfront or have vocal gifts or who grab attention from people, um, you know, large groups of people. But I think mothers and the way they sacrifice um, is something that truly honors the Lord, and there will be great reward on the last day for that. So thank you, moms, here uh, for the work that you do. Make sure you, you thank your mom and your wife uh, today at some point. I'm sure you all will. We can open up to Mark chapter 8 here. Mark chapter eight, as you're opening there, Yale University is probably not a school that we think about too often here, but at Yale University, they have a student organization that is one of the most influential student organizations called the Yale Political Union. Have any of you heard of the Yale Political Union before? Probably not. Well, this organization was started in 1934, and it still exists today, and a whole variety of leaders, uh, national leaders, names you would recognize, have been through and a part of the Yale Political Union. People like William Buckley, uh, he was a conservative thinker, sort of started the conservative movement back in the 60s. Uh, John Bolton, who's in the current administration, I believe. John Kerry ran for president, secretary of state under President Obama. Bob Taft, the governor of Ohio a few years back. Um, All of these guys and several others, names that I could mention that you would know, were a part of the Yale Political Union during their time at Yale. So what's so significant about this particular student organization, the Yale Political Union? Well, it's a debate society, which is pretty common on college campuses, but this is a unique debate society. When you think of a typical uh, debate team, you think of people who... Gather arguments and they defend or attack, they defend their side, attack the other side, and at the end of the debate, it's a contest and there's a winner and there's a loser. Judges pick based on the strength of the argument. Well, that's not what this political union, this debate society does. They do debate things, but their goal is not to have a winner and a loser to the debate. In fact, they don't identify a winner and a loser. Their goal is to actually convert people to their way of thinking. They just want to argue, they want to talk, and they want to convert other students to their position on a particular issue. And so you can see why that would be a very influential student union. And it's grown over the years and at some points has been the largest uh, student organization at Yale. Well, if you were a student in the Yale Political Union and you wanted to be in leadership... In this union, which was a significant office for your future, you would have to be interviewed by some of the current leaders and they would ask you a couple of important questions. First of all, they would ask you, Did you ever break someone on the floor? That's the terminology that they would use. Well, what does that mean? It's not a physical violence. What they meant was, Did you ever, during the course of a debate, change someone's mind? in the middle of the debate, in front of everyone. Did that ever happen? They wanted to know that. And the second question was, have you ever been broken on the floor? Now, when they asked that question, you would think that they would want people to say, no, I've never been broken on the floor during a debate. But that's not actually the answer they're looking for. They want you to answer yes and give an example of how you've been broken on the floor. And the reason for that is they want people who are willing to change their mind when the evidence is overwhelming and pursue the truth in a particular issue or particular area. They want people who follow the evidence to the best conclusion available. Now, I'm sure most of us have not been involved in formal debates in that way. But I do wonder if you've ever had the experience of being broken on the floor. If you've ever had a moment in your life where some issue has come up or where you've been pondering or having a conversation with someone and you felt the the weight or the, the ground shift underneath your feet and you started to think differently about an issue or a topic. You've been holding one set of beliefs for a long time, and in that moment, everything changes based on the argumentation that you're having. Now, that may happen in an instant, or that could happen over a period of time, over a year, and you come to think differently about an issue as you've been talking about it and reading about it. This morning, we're going to be looking at a passage, Mark chapter 8, 27 to 33, that gives us the beginning of this process for the disciples. They're not going to be broken on the floor this morning, but eventually they will be broken on the floor. And they will come to see everything about who Messiah is, about who Jesus is, differently. Do you remember from last time we talked about this story of the blind man who came to see partially and then came to see fully? Well, that's the beginning of this process here today with the disciples. They have to come to see everything differently. That must take place in their minds and in their lives. So Mark eight to twenty-seven to thirty-three, and this text is the crux of this gospel. I mean, this is the centerpiece. Of course, the crucifixion is the most crucifixion and resurrection, the most important uh, events that take place. But literally, when this is structured, this piece of the gospel is the centerpiece. Everything leads up to this, and everything flows away from what we're going to study today. And the disciples are going to be confronted with a question that is designed to put them on the, on the spot. It's designed to break them on the floor this morning. And once they're asked that question and they give their answer, Jesus is going to flip everything on its head. And he's going to give them new information that they have to come to grips with. And as they come to grips with that, it's going to, it's going to require them to see the world and see themselves in an entirely new way. And as they begin to see the world differently, you and I have to begin to see the world differently as well based on what Jesus says. So today we're going to study two features of the ministry of Jesus that are necessary for life as disciples. Two features of the ministry of Jesus that are necessary for life as disciples. If you're going to be a follower of Christ, you need to come to grips with what we study today. This sets the pace for the entire rest of the book. It's the mountaintop here. And the first one of these features is that he is the promised delivering king in verses 27 to 30. Look at verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now, if you remember the geography of what's happening here, they were in Bethsaida, Last time, when this story of the blind man happened, verses 22 to 26, they're in this little village of Bethsaida, the blind man was healed, and now Jesus takes his disciples on a journey to Caesarea Philippi. Now, this is one of those moments, as you're reading the gospel, where you want to, you're reading it on your own, flip to the back of your Bible and look at a map. (laughs) Because if you read these names, Bethsaida and Caesarea Philippi, and you don't know where these are, then you're going to miss something about this story, You can flip to the back now and look, or I'll just show you a picture here that hopefully you can see and make out on the screen there, okay? That lower arrow you can see right by the Sea of Galilee is where Bethsaida is. And then, of course, you're familiar with the geography of Israel. Jerusalem is very far to the south near the Dead Sea, down there a little bit in the middle toward the Mediterranean Sea. But Bethsaida is on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, and Caesarea Philippi is exactly the opposite direction of Jerusalem. They are headed on a 25-mile journey north to Caesarea Philippi. So this is a walk that would have taken them a while to get to. And as they're on this walk, they're discussing a very important question that Jesus poses to his disciples. Look at the rest of verse 27. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now, if you were here last week, you know that the entire first half of the Gospel of Mark is really trying to answer this question. Who is Jesus Christ? And it presents to us the authoritative ministry of Jesus, and we see him doing all these different things and in, in all this different teaching in the first half. And he's demonstrating who he is by his actions, but he doesn't necessarily say who he is explicitly in the first half. And if you were living in Israel during this time and you knew about the ministry of Jesus, you had to find some explanation for this guy, right? Let me say it this way. This is not normal. (laughs) What's happening is not normal. This is not your average run-of-the-mill Jewish carpenter raised in Nazareth, okay? This guy is not normal. So if you're hearing about him, you have to be thinking, okay, what's going on? There has to be some explanation for what has been happening in Israel around Galilee. He's been healing people. He's been casting out demons. He's been feeding people by the thousands in the wilderness with almost no food. And so you're seeing this, you're hearing about this, rumors are running wild, and you're thinking, okay, there has to be some explanation. Well, the disciples had been with people as Jesus was doing all these miracles, so no doubt they had heard some of the answers to this very question. So what have people been saying? Well, look at verse 28. And they told him, here's what people have been saying. John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others, one of the prophets. So three different answers there. John the Baptist, he was obviously revered by the Jews. Important guy, came before Jesus preaching in the wilderness and a lot of people went out to be baptized by John. Elijah, one of the most, if not the most, significant Old Testament prophets. The interesting thing about Elijah is he never died. He was translated to heaven. And so maybe there were rumors that he's back again and he's performing all these miracles. And then there's this whole group that says he's one of the prophets. He's not just a prophet. He's one of the prophets. He's in the line of prophets that came in the Old Testament. Now, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, you know that prophets played a very important role in the Old Testament. They, they were respected by the people. They brought God's word. They spoke for God. And if you're a Jew living at the time of Jesus, there has not been a, an official prophet that has come to the nation of Israel since Malachi, hundreds of years earlier. And so for you to think, man, there's another one of the prophets that is working and speaking for God amongst his people that would have been significant. that would have been a substantial thing for you to think. It meant that God was moving again amongst his people, and so all three of these assessments were full of praise and honor and weight. People did not generally people did not have a low opinion of who Jesus was. but as you read these. Of course, you know, you have to ask the question, are these assessments correct? Is he just one of the prophets? And so Jesus presses this question on his disciples as they're walking along. Look at verse 29. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And the disciples At this point, they'd been with Jesus for many months, right? At least, probably years of his ministry. They'd been with him at this point. They'd seen it all. They'd been witnesses to all of this, all the miracles, all the feeding, the casting out of demons, everything. They had been with him. They had been privy to private instruction from Jesus. He'd explained parables to them. And, of course, we saw last week they'd been blinded partially. They sort of got it. They didn't really get it. They're operating out of a partial understanding, a clouded understanding of who he is. And so at this point, as they're making this journey, Jesus presses this question on them. Who do you, Who do you guys think that I am? After all of this, what you've seen in the first half of this gospel, go ahead, you tell me. And they answer him. Look at verse 29. Peter answered. Speaking for, as the spokesperson for the rest of the disciples, Peter answered, you are the Christ. Now his answer here requires a little bit of further reflection for you and I. What does he mean by the Christ? Well, when this word was used, Christos is the Greek word, when it was used in the Old Testament... It was translated, or it meant the anointed one, or the smeared one is another way to say it. And basically it means this person was anointed or was smeared with oil on their head. And a person was anointed or smeared, you know this, in the Old Testament, because they were given a specific task by God to accomplish. And who were some people that were anointed? Well, kings were anointed in the Old Testament, priests were anointed, The Greek word is Christos, and in Hebrew, this word is Mashiach. And you can see where we get our word Messiah from that. And in Old Testament times, you had people that were anointed, and kings were one of the main groups of people who were anointed. And so they were anointed to fulfill a specific role by God. And this word, Christos or Mashiach, came to be associated with a Davidic king because kings were anointed. And because God had promised, remember in 2 Samuel 7, God had promised to David that one of his descendants would sit on his throne forever and would reign over Israel. And his kingdom would last forever. He would be the anointed one. He would be the king. And when Israel failed and went into exile, the prophets wrote... And they tried to encourage the people and they tried to say, there's going to come a reconstitution of the Davidic kingdom. And there's going to come an anointed one, a Mashiach, who's going to reign and who's going to rule. And this coming one, this anointed one is going to be a ruler of great strength and he's going to have great authority and he's going to defeat Israel's enemies and he's going to bring success and flourishing to the nation. And so all of this was sort of Wrapped up in the minds of some Jews as they thought about this word Christos or Messiah. It was in the back of their minds and they were they were hoping in it. And at this particular time, when Jesus comes onto the scene, it's a, a vibrant time for Israel in the sense that they were under the thumb of Rome, and so people were thinking a lot and longing for this coming Davidic king. They knew God would be faithful to his covenant, to his people, they would keep, that he would keep his promises. They knew this was one of his promises, and so there, were a, there was a lot of hope, and there was a lot of expectation. And let's say it this way, messianic expectations were running high for some people at this time. And so when Jesus, after all of this, asks the disciples, who do you think that I am? it Actually, it makes sense here for them to see him as the Messiah, I mean, think about it. Jesus had come onto the scene preaching the kingdom of God, and he come onto the scene saying that God's kingdom was going to arrive, and it was already breaking in through his ministry. And they'd watched him display superhuman abilities to provide food and heal people, and he displayed great authority and quality of character. And so they had designated him. They thought this could be the anointed one, the promised one. And they're hoping that he will be the one that will fulfill all of these Old Testament expectations. They're hoping that the time of exile would be over and that he would help them and would lead Israel and would throw off the chains of oppression and usher in a kingdom of peace and prosperity for the people. And all of that is, is right to a certain degree. I mean, he is the promised delivering king. And so they essentially got this right in one way of thinking about it. But notice how Jesus responds in verse 30. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't affirm it. Their designation of him as the Messiah but he tells them to keep that assessment of him quiet. Why? Why does he do that? He is the promised delivering king. You and I know that. But this designation of him, what their, their understanding of Jesus doesn't yet fully grasp the nature of his work. They don't fully understand what it's going to take for him to be on that throne and to be the exalted king and to be the ruler. They don't get it yet. They only have part of the story. And so what needs to happen here for the disciples is they need to be broken on the floor. And there's news coming in this next verse that is going to shatter their expectations. And that brings us to our second necessary feature of the ministry of Jesus. He is the promised delivering king, but... Deliverance will only come through suffering. This is the path to deliverance. In other words, Christ, Messiah, is the proper title. That's true, but it's the wrong understanding of that title. It's not the full story. Look at verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. If you go back and read all of Mark up until this point, this is the first time that Jesus really begins to teach these truths clearly. This is new info. This is like entering an argument into the debate that is shocking and is new and is weighty and is powerful. Of course, if if you're reading the whole gospel, you've read the beginning. And so sort of a narrator's note to us at the beginning is that this is about the Son of God, the Messiah. And so we know that as the readers, but the disciples are digesting this information for the first time. This is new to them. Notice here also that Jesus doesn't call himself the Messiah. Look what he calls himself. He sort of switches out his title here begin to teach them that, the son of man. And he's not denying the title of Messiah, anointed one. He'll take that up later on in the gospel. But he understands that if you start throwing this term around with the popular understanding in, in Israel of what this means, the political ramifications, it could be greatly misunderstood and it could subvert his whole purpose and his whole ministry. And so he uses this different title, son of man. Now, what's interesting is this has roots in the Old Testament as well. We won't go into all of that because it's a lot of detail there, but it basically talks about his status as a unique individual. It doesn't carry the kingly weight that Christos does, but it does talk about him as a very unique, empowered individual, And what he says here in verse 31, this teaching, this new teaching that he begins to give them, it has two sides to it. And you have to understand both sides. First of all, he will suffer and be rejected, and this will lead to his death. We've already talked about a lot that the common understanding, the Jewish understanding of Messiah is that he would be a conquering hero. And that, a conquering king, that was built on the Old Testament. That's not aberrant understanding, an aberrant understanding of who he is. That is built on the Old Testament promises and expectations. But Jesus says here that he's going to be rejected by several groups of people. Look at this. He will be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. These three groups were the religious authorities in Israel. These are the people who held the power. They define who is in, who is out, what holiness is and what holiness is not. And these people, the power brokers, are going to reject him. This would have been terrifying for most Jews. And not only will he be rejected by those people, but it says that he will be killed. What kind of a king is killed? This is a silly notion. It doesn't make sense. A dying Messiah is a contradiction in terms. It's like saying there's going to be dry water. It doesn't make sense for these Jews. One author said this about this stereotype. Not only does Jesus not fit the Messianic stereotype, but he defines his mission in scandalous contrast to it. I like the word scandalous there. The meaning of his life and mission is not about victory and success, but about rejection, suffering, and death. And this is a paradigm shift for the disciples. They need to get this. They need to understand this because they won't understand who Jesus is. They won't understand that he really is the Messiah unless they get this scandalous aspect of his ministry. Why? Well, this is the other side of this teaching. He will suffer and be rejected, and he will die. And the, the other side of this is, look back at verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. This, the other side of this is that this is necessary. This is not optional for him. The Greek word literally means it is necessary that the Son of Man must suffer and die. And in what sense is it necessary? Why does this have to happen? Why does it have to take place this way? Well, when you think about God, God is both just and loving. And those qualities are not in some sort of competition with each other. It's not like those are two parts of God and they sort of battle it out to see which one wins. He is just and he is loving all at the same time, in the same way, in the same actions. And God created mankind out of love and affection, and then mankind fell into sin. And so God loves his creation and wants them to have a relationship, wants us to have a relationship with him. He desires to redeem us, but at the same time, his love, his just love wouldn't be truly holy if he just winked at sin and overlooked it and bypassed it. And if he just opened the door to heaven and to a relationship with him without judging sin, he can't do that because he's a just, loving, and holy God. And so it is absolutely necessary for God the Father to pour out his wrath on the God-man, Jesus Christ, in order to justly forgive sins and redeem sinners. This path is the only path for you and I to be with him. Romans 3 tells us about this. For all have sinned, I'll start in the middle of the argument. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a satisfaction or propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Why? This was to show God's righteousness, Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that, and here's the key, he might be just. And when he declares you righteous for faith in the work of Christ, that he would be the just judge who is able to give that declaration to you, the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It was necessary for Jesus to suffer and die to redeem. But here's bringing the whole thing together. That redemption is the very means by which Jesus wins the victory over sin and evil. He becomes king through suffering and dying. He ushers in the messianic kingdom through his rejection and the shedding of his blood and his death. He reigns and delivers through suffering and atonement. All of those go together. I mean, remember, again, he's been preaching the good news of the kingdom. God's rule and reign is beginning to break into the world and things will be set right. He will triumph. God will make things right. And you've seen hints of that. Victory over sickness. Victory over demons. Healing. But that victory will be made complete through his suffering. It's the path to his victory. But his rejection and suffering won't be the end. Look at the end of verse 31. And after three days, he will rise again. He'll rise from the dead, and in victory, he will sit on his father David's throne. Now, can you imagine what this would have been like receiving this news for the disciples? They have these expectations of what the Old Testament promises are, of a king who will reign and set things right. And this would have been hard to hear. And the way in which Jesus says it is particularly forward. Look at verse 32, the beginning. And he said this plainly. There was a certain amount of frankness to this. I mean, he just told it like it is, he gave it to him straight. And if you think about back in Mark 4, Jesus had been teaching in parables, right? Sometimes it was hard to understand him. It was a little bit enigmatic. But now he comes right out and says it. This is what's going to happen. And not only is this what's going to happen, but it is absolutely necessary for this to happen. If you've ever played sports and been hit in the stomach with a ball... Whether it's a baseball, football, basketball, hard in the stomach. Um, we Cole plays soccer, and we were at the game the other day, and a little girl got just drilled in the stomach, and I felt so bad for her. It's like you can't catch your breath. You're you're trying, and the wind has been knocked out of you. And I really think that's a little bit what this was like for the disciples. It was their heads were spinning when they heard this news. They couldn't catch their breath. They can't grasp it. Something has to be wrong with what you're saying. You're not, Jesus, you're not really seeing things as they truly are. I mean, we know the Old Testament, or at least part of the Old Testament. So look how they respond in verse 32. He said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter's speaking for the rest of the group here. They're not getting this. They're not understanding it. And so Peter sort of shuffles Jesus over to the side, and it's the same word, rebuke, For when Jesus rebukes the demons and rebukes the wind, it's a very strong word. And Peter's telling him, Jesus, you're not getting this. So how does Jesus respond to Peter? Look at verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, knowing that his disciples agree with Peter, that he's the spokesman, he sees all of them standing there waiting for him to suddenly come to his senses. He does the same thing. He gives it right back to Peter. Same word. He rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Notice in Jesus's rebuke here, there there are two ways of seeing this. He draws a distinction between them. There's the thinking on the things of man and thinking on the things of God. You can see this news, this information, this reality of the suffering Messiah from the perspective of man, or you can see it from the perspective of God. The disciples were thinking very normal human thoughts here, right? I mean, this was natural. They're believing what came naturally to them, and a suffering Messiah would not have been normal. This would not have made sense. And Jesus puts that way of seeing it, man's way of seeing God's working at at odds with God's way, with God's kingdom. And in God's way of working and orchestrating things, there is a vital connection between suffering and deliverance, between rejection and reigning as king. This is God's way of doing it. It is according to his plan. And God's values don't square with man's values, do they? The preaching of the cross is foolishness to the Jews. For God's king to die is silly. It makes no sense. If you've ever studied economics, you know that there are certain principles that guide how, and that govern how economies work. There are things you can sort of count on when it comes to economics. Economics. And what we're seeing here is that God's way of doing things runs on values and principles that are very different from man's. God's way of seeing the world is very different from man's values and way of seeing the world. What is Jesus telling us here are the basic values of God's way of viewing the world, of working in the world. And these values will be worked out through the rest of the gospel of Mark. And here's what they are. Exaltation comes through suffering. Denying self leads to victory. You must become low before you are raised up. Humble yourself before God and you will be exalted. And you see that in the work of Jesus. And Paul and others in the New Testament pick up on this. But we, Hebrews 2, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. And look at this, crowned, exalted as king with glory and honor. Why? Because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And then 1 Corinthians. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. It is grace to each one of us. Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. God receives the glory for all of this. And this is the exact opposite of how the disciples are thinking. And it's the exact opposite of how you and I often think, isn't it? Often we believe that the path to glory goes straight up. Grab all the power you can, be a winner, not a loser. We don't like losers. Be the center of attention. Talk about yourself. Get what you can while you can. Those are worldly values, and we often buy into those values. And they subtly get into the way we act and live in the world. But that way of living will not lead to life and experiencing life to its fullest. It will not lead to joy or happiness, and it certainly won't fit us for the kingdom of God because his kingdom operates on a different economy. And our problem is we're so used to operating in a worldly manner and seeing the world this way that we are blind to God's way. And that is exactly what happened to Peter here, isn't it? And the rest of the disciples. He was so blinded. By his way of ordering the world, the value system and the structure that he thought should be going on. He was so blinded by that and so used to it that he rebukes Jesus. Gets it completely backwards. And what we need, what Peter needs, what we need is we need to be broken on the floor. And these next few verses, verses 34 to 38, these verses are Jesus taking this principle of his economy that suffering precedes exaltation, that denying yourself brings true life, that humbling yourself leads to knowing God and being exalted by him. He's going to take these truths and he's going to press them forcefully on the disciples. And he's going to say, listen, if you're going to follow me, this is what it takes. This is the path that it takes. We're going to get there in a couple of weeks. But while we're waiting, you can read through that passage. You can study that passage. But I want to leave you with a very clear passage from the Apostle Paul that, may, that, that sets this out. The connection between exaltation and suffering and sets it as the example for you and I. Flip over to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to end with this. Philippians 2. We're going to start in verse 3. He starts with the application to us, and then he gives the theological reason for it behind it. This is God's upside-down way of ordering things. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Man, that's it. That is the principle that should guide everything we do in this life. That's the principle, I think, that mothers so often exhibit. You count others as more important than yourselves. Why do we do that? On a cross, and look what happened. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the King to the glory of God the Father. He's the exalted Lord because he suffered for us, he laid down his life so that you and I could be freed from sin and so that we could be exalted with him. Revelation tells us that we will be a kingdom of priests reigning with him for all of eternity. And it's because of his suffering and his death. And so because of this upside-down economy that he teaches here and that he's going to apply to his disciples, he is certainly deserving of our praise and our humble adoration. And we should give it to him daily. Let's pray. Father, the way you do things is so different from the way we would do things. We are self-centered. We want to exalt self. We want to grab authority and power when we can for our own sinful tendencies and ends. And that Jesus is the great example of this for us. And he's the one who secures our our freedom to live this way through his suffering and through his death. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help each one here to ponder this, this way that you work in the world, these features of your ministry of your economy this week, help us to process through these things and make application to our own lives. And, Help us just to rejoice in this, that we have been brought to life. We have been given freedom. We have been redeemed because of this way of doing things, because you were humbled for us. Help us just to to praise you and honor you for that. And we do, Lord. We thank you. We ask all these things in Christ's name and for his glory.